0: From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the friendly confines of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a biweekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia.
1: Good to be with you for episode 14 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast or have enjoyed past episodes, please keep the podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast at iTunes. We are also developing a more concrete way you can support our efforts here, so stay tuned for more details in future episodes. Our election episode dropped last week, but we are actually, Drew, recording this episode on Election Day. So the big question is, did you vote?
0: Well, absolutely. And lo- lines were long, and unfortunately, my polling place, I had the heat cranked up, and it was in a tight hallway, but uh, I made it through, and I exercised my civic right.
1: Democracy, right? Absolutely. A- and we have our studio producer, Michaela Mummer, in studio with us. As always, how about you, Michaela? Did you vote?
2: I have not voted yet, but right after we stop recording this podcast, I'm going to head out and get ready to vote then. So I will be leaving as soon as we finish this up.
1: Do your civic duty, right? Yep. I am happy that we, the staff of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, have done uh, our civic responsibility. I hope you have too. And by the way, as long as we have our studio producer, Michaela Mummert, on the mic Michaela, I understand you're heading to Nashville. You're leaving us, heading to Nashville next semester. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: I am. I am leaving next semester. Um, I was accepted to the Contemporary Music Center program um, through Messiah College. So basically, I'll be spending a whole semester in Nashville, and this program has three main tracks, so like an artist track, a business track, and a technical track. And basically, I will be doing the technical track, so I'll be learning how to do lighting, doing more advanced studio recording, concert production, that kind of thing. So I'm going to be learning all the ins and outs of the behind the scenes of the music industry.
1: That is awesome. And then you're going to come back next year, right? And you're going to bring all that wisdom to the way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Oh yeah, oh yeah, right? definitely. And you're going to find us a replacement too for you while you're gone, right?
2: I guess it's the least I can do if I'm leaving you guys. <laughs> there
1: you go. And Drew, you you are also a busy man. Uh, you're headed to Nashville, too, and then Philadelphia, right? You're, yeah. You're, I, you're a traveling man. Tell uh, us about that. I'm,
0: le- I'm leaving for Nashville, actually, the day after we're recording, the day after today, going to the Ethno-History Conference, so a collection of historians who, like me, work on indigenous subjects and use a little bit of a mix of archaeology and anthropology in the way they do history. I'm very excited. I'm actually going to be sharing a panel with Colin Calloway, which, mm-hmm. if you are familiar with... Native American history is one of the big the big guns so I
1: actually saw him on c-span giving a lecture uh, this weekend. well luckily
0: yeah. he's also a very very nice person, so when, when it was announced he was going to be the commenter on my paper, I have to say I initially was more nervous than excited, but he is uh, just a, a good leader in the field, both in terms of his work but also in the way he uh, takes care of the young scholars who are coming behind him. It's then, good to
1: uh, not to interrupt you, but it's good to see that you are being consistent with your fanboyism. Oh, Man. Yeah, yeah. But you're also heading to Philadelphia for a, for a speaking gig, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, this one kind of fell in my lap, and very excited. I will be giving a talk at Confab Higher Ed, which is a conference for uh, actually for content strategists who work in higher education. And I will be discussing the intersection of digital humanities and content strategy and theorizing on ways that we might be able to coordinate our efforts a little bit better. So hopefully that that talk will be available online as I believe they will be live streaming it.
1: Yeah, we'll try to get that up. Uh, We'll try to at least get a recording of it up on the blog.
0: So what are you up to, John? It sounds like volleyball has become your sport of choice in these months.
1: Yeah, it's been a wild ride. My daughter's a freshman at Calvin College, and for most of the season they've been the number one ranked team at Division Three, NCAA Division Three Volleyball. So they just – Division Three Volleyball is really cool. They actually have a selection show for the NCAA tournament, and so she's playing in the regionals again this weekend, and then so this would be what the weekend of this – the. 8th, 9th, well, actually 11th, 12th, 13th, and then next weekend if they advance into the Nationals. So it's going to be a fun ride, a lot of traveling, but it'll be fun watching her try to compete for a National Championship. Speaking of sports, what do we have on tap for Episode 14,
0: Drew? Well, it's our Season's Sports episode, which is something we have... I guess, made an annual tradition of since last season when we had ESPN columnist Paul Lucas on. But uh, today we are being joined by sports historian Amy Bass.
1: Yeah, Amy's an old friend. Uh, We went to graduate school together. She has a Tuesday morning radio show on a local station in Westchester County, New York, which I've appeared on multiple times. But Amy is one of the foremost authorities on sports and society, sports history and society. So I am very thrilled to have her. And she's made some time for us today. I'm also hoping that we can get her to say something about the Cubs. Amy is a long-suffering or was a long-suffering Red Sox fan, so she might be able to provide some – historical perspective to the recent Cubs World Series win and speaking of perspectives on the Cubs World Series win what did you think about it Drew I know you're a Cardinals fan was it painful
0: a a little bit I kept telling the joke anyone who listened to uh, last season's episode with Paul Lucas will know is as a historian of Native America from St. Louis this was a tough pill for me to swallow because you know I have some opinions on the uh, use of Native American imagery in sports. And so that made it hard for me to be too excited about Cleveland. But at the same time, you know, I've grown up really hating the Cubs. But then as a historian, you you have to root. those were the two teams with the longest current championship droughts in baseball. So in in another sense, it's always nice to see uh, a big historic event. So it was a conflicted viewing for me. Yeah, I'm,
1: I'm, was rooting for the Indians. Actually, I'm not really a Cubs fan. I lived in Chicago for five years in the late '80s and early '90s. I actually met my wife in Chicago. I used to listen to a steady diet of Chicago talk radio. Some of you who are listening from Chicago, you you remember the early years of the Score sports radio station, the Score with Mike North and Dan Jiggets in the afternoons, talking Cubs, talking Bears, and so forth. So I'm sympathetic. I'm glad that the Cubs got their victory.
0: To put it into historic perspective, I think one of the I saw a, a tweet from from sports analyst Jay Donde, and he noted that eighteen year olds in Chicago today will have seen the Cubs win the World Series, but never have seen the Bulls win an NBA championship.
1: That's amazing. I was I was there for those first three championships too. That's that just blows me away.
0: If I may, a couple more historical tidbits. When Dexter Fowler went up to bat in the yeah. first in game one, he was the first African-American Cub to bat in a World Series. Because prior to this year, the Cubs hadn't played since integration. That's incredible. Yeah. And then also, the uh, 1908 World Series championship, the Cubs weren't even broadcast on the radio. So if you had wanted to watch them, you had to watch on either an electronic scoreboard or followed by telegraph. That's just
1: amazing how it's been that long since Cubs fans have been suffering for that long. I love the Dexter Fowler thing. I would have never even thought about
0: that. Yeah, and I mean, it it wasn't even as if the Cubs as a team had systematically, you know, I mean, obviously all of baseball had systematically tried to exclude African-American players for a long time. But, yeah, I mean, that just goes to show how futile the the Cubs team had been, you know, since, since the curse of the Billy Goat. But while we're on the subject of sports, society, and history, I think you have some thoughts for us today, John.
1: As I thought about what I would say by way of commentary in this, our sports and society episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, it struck me that my earliest education on some of the most important issues facing American life in the last half century – came through my childhood passion for sports. We cannot underestimate the role that sports has played in shaping our understanding of the American experience. As I look back on my formative years, I remember learning about race in America from stuff I read in school about Jackie Robinson. I have a vivid memory of my elementary school teacher talking about Vin Scully's call of Hank Aaron's 715th home run. In preparation for this podcast, I went back and looked it up. Here's what Scully said. Quote, What "What a marvelous marvelous moment moment for baseball. baseball. What a marvelous marvelous moment moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the Deep South for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us. And particularly for Henry Aaron, who was that place. I learned something about ethnicity and my own ethnic identity from listening to my Italian immigrant grandparents talk about Joe DiMaggio. Growing up I knew that the guy on the Mr. Coffee commercials was one of us. He would just glide through the outfield, my grandfather used to say. My grandmother would constantly remind me that my father's twin brother, my Uncle Joe, was named after DiMaggio. My dad came out first. He was named John after his father. But as the story goes, while waiting for my Uncle Joe to arrive, my grandparents were listening to the radio in the delivery room and heard Mel Allen call a Jolton Joe home run. I later learned that DiMaggio was not even playing on that day, but that didn't matter. Ethnic identity is often constructed by these kinds of myths. I was just a little guy in 1972, but I learned something about the volatility and politics of the Middle East when I sat with my parents in our living room and they tried to explain to me why ABC's Jim McKay speaking from a studio in Munich, seemed so sad as he reported the murder of 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team by a Palestinian terror group. And speaking of the Olympics, I learned a lesson or two about nationalism in the 1976 Olympics, cheering for Michael Spinks, Leon Spinks, Howard Davis, Sugar Ray Leonard, and Leo Randolph, all gold medal winning boxers. Those lessons were further enforced as a middle schooler watching the miracle on ice in Lake Placid four years later. I think it's fair to say that my first lesson in gender politics came from Billie Jean King's 6 6'3, 6'3 victory over Bobby Riggs in the so-called Battle of the Sexes in the Houston Astrodome on September 20th, 1973. I should also add, it also spurred a lifelong love of sugar daddies. You can look that one up for yourself. And speaking of tennis, my parents instilled for me a love of Jimmy Connors, a working-class hero from the streets of East St. Louis. Muhammad Ali exposed me to Vietnam and the politics of war. Baseball free agency gave me a distrust of free market capitalism. I just couldn't handle seeing my childhood heroes leave town to pursue more money. Thanks, Andy Messersmith. I didn't understand the meaning of all these things at the time. My love of sports was driven more by loyalty to teams or the thrill of competition or the desire to fit into the social world of elementary and middle school boys growing up in 1970s New Jersey. But as I look back, I realize that sports provided my introduction to matters that were much larger than the physical displays of athletic prowess happening on the field or the court or in the ring or on the ice. Sports imitates life. And it's time for more historians to pay closer attention to this fact.
0: Today we are joined by Amy Bass, whose research interests include African-American history, modern American culture, with a particular focus on sports, identity politics, and historical theory and methodology. Her first book, Not the Triumph But the Struggle, the 1968 Olympic Games and the Making of the Black Athlete, is considered a standard-bearer for those interested in writing about sports from a cultural perspective. She has also served as Senior Research Supervisor for NBC Olympic Sports, winning an Emmy Award for her work at the London Olympic Games in 2012 should also add, as I did in our sort of
1: opening here, that Amy and I are old friends from graduate school. Maybe that, who knows, that might come up as well. But <laughs> let's, let's talk some sports here, Amy. And first of all, it's great to have you on the show.
2: Thanks, John. It's great to be chatting with you.
1: Yeah. Big story in sports right now are the Cubs, right? We have you here to give us some kind of commentary, historical perspective. Uh, what's your take on this, you know, on this Cubs World Series victory?
2: Well, I can't talk about baseball without talking about the Red Sox. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna I, my my and my and it's and it's valid. I'm a historian and a Red Sox fan, so my take on the Cubs goes through both of those lenses. Sure, I, I think I tweeted at one point. It was the most Red Sox-y World Series that the Red Sox weren't in ever. You know, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know who to cheer for. It was like there's Mike yeah. Napoli and oh look Theo and Tito and that's right Coco and it just on and on. Andy's pitching. So, you know, and, and be still my John Lester heart. So it's it's it was that. But then as a historian, you know, the same reason that, you know, I happen to be a Red Sox fan. But if I wasn't a Red Sox fan, I would still want to write about the Red Sox because teams like the Cubs and the Red Sox are, you know, baseball's gift to history. When you have teams with this kind of a fan base and teams that are are really Located in these historic parks in the middle of American urban centers, you have teams that span... Decades upon decades upon decades without winning. You know, right. these are teams that are defined by their heartbreaking losses, not the Red Sox so much anymore. But but you know, things like you know, I I can go on and on for days about the curse of the Bambino and its invention as 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 yeah. you know this thing to lop onto. And you've got the curse of the Billy Goat with the Cubs. So there were just there were all these fantastic parallels. And then you have truly one of the most exciting seven game World Series events ever. And I would say that Game 7 is one of the best single night of sports America's ever watched. Wow. Um, you throw that into the middle of the fact that America has been losing its mind over the presidential election, right, <laughs> all the way leading through this World Series. I said to one guy, you know, what? we earned this game. We deserve this game. Yeah, yeah. This baseball game is America's vacation from America right now.
1: I love it. I love it. <laughs>
2: and that's and that's you know what it, it just it couldn't have been better
0: and how must it feel to be john lester and have a world series ring from both boston and chicago i well, mean i feel like that is just the the math of that is pretty impressive
2: you know look if you've got a curse call theo epstein cuz he's going to take care of it for you you know john lester is such a unique sports figure that when he opted to leave boston The Boston Globe took out a, you know, the Boston Globe took out an ad. John Lester took out an ad. It was, you know, no one leaves with that much love. So John Lester is a singular story. He's just a great sports story, you know, a comeback story from cancer, a, a double World Series winner with, you know, these cursed teams. It's just it's it's why sports matter. It's why we care.
1: Amy, what is your take on this thing that I'm reading now? Of, you know, it's actually bad for baseball that (laughs) the Cubs have won. Or maybe you could even apply this to the Red Sox, right? It's bad for baseball that this streak came to an end. What's your take on that?
2: Well, there was a Boston Globe columnist who said that the worst thing that ever happened to the Red Sox is they won. Yeah, And we did see sort of this, you know, they became the evil empire for a little bit. They started to mimic the Yankees. Suddenly we were spending how much, you know, the Adrian Gonzalez contract and those kinds of things. You know, that's not how the Red Sox got to where they got. Their history was tumultuous and homegrown and racist and all these different kinds of things, right? It, it was just this complicated history and then suddenly they were world champions and it was like, let's spend some cash and it was disastrous, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't even want to say it, but I will. Bobby Valentine, like <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. So I think that the Cubs and Theo, you know, hopefully learn from stuff like that, but You know, you can't predict what your next big thing in sports is going to be. It's rare that anyone ever does it. You can't predict who your big story in the Olympic Games is going to be. You can't pick which team America is going to love curses aren't the only reason that we, that we lob onto these things. You sure, know, that sure. there's different stories that, that each team has that's rooted into the time and space that they exist. And that's, you know, that's just good history, right. To, to understand how time and space works with anything. But, but I think that that applies really particularly with teams because of the attachment that fans have and because of the identity that a team and its location sort of nurture in one another.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, great points. Let's shift gears quickly to another sport. Let's go to the NFL. Um, um, <laughs> let's talk about Colin Kaepernick. I mean, All right, I'll
2: talk about him. You know,
1: I- we have we have the foremost, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, authority on sports and race on the line here. We cannot ignore the Colin Kaepernick incident. Put, you know, for some of you who are unfamiliar, first of all, Amy, you, you explain for those who might be unfamiliar and are, are, are don't know who Colin Kaepernick is or what the controversy is. Can you give us like a, a 30 second to one minute sort of summary of what this issue is all about?
2: You want 30 seconds on Colin Kaepernick? I'll give
1: you a minute, Amy.
2: Wow. Um, well, you know, I'm not a Colin Kaepernick expert, but you know, Colin Kaepernick is a football player, San Francisco 49ers, a quarterback. And long story short, decided to go on bended knee during the national anthem as a as a mode of sort of awareness and uh, protest. I guess you can you know it was people think of protests as sort of you've got a you've got a sign and you're chanting and you're marching and you're violent and and you know this was he basically said. It was a preseason game, so it, you know, some people even say, like, it doesn't even count. Right, right. Um, but instead of standing, you know, we know what the rules are for the Star-Spangled Banner, and I have, I have written extensively about this, that the Star-Spangled Banner is the perfect place to stage a protest yeah. because everyone knows what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take your, take your hat off. You're supposed to stand at attention. Ideally, your hand is supposed to go over your heart, something that Gabby Douglas learned the hard way that's this right, summer in right. Rio. And Kaepernick went down instead of up. And said that he wasn't going to show pride in a symbol of the country that oppresses people of color. So and Amy, so- put this
1: put this into some historical context because you have written about the national anthem. Protests, similar protests.
2: Yeah.
1: Take us back to the 1968 Olympics. Uh, well, and, and, and
2: even before. So before, you know, it's, yeah. it's, inter- it's interesting, John, because so many people reached out to me and were like, Why aren't you writing about this? Why aren't you writing about this? Why aren't you writing about yeah. this? And it was like on my head because I already have. I
1: remember you tweeted uh-huh. that or put it on Facebook, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
2: I'm not going to write about Colin Kaepernick because, yeah, the antecedents are enormous. And and that's one of the reasons it was so effective for him to do what he did. So obviously, my first book was about the 68 Olympic Games and. which which Tommy Smith and John Carlos staged a silent protest during the, the medal ceremony for the men's 200 meters, raising black love fists over their head and, and bowing their heads. And there were various other symbols there. In the, in the course of about 40 hours, they lose their Olympic credentials, which forces them out of the Olympic village and home. To, and you know, it d- depends on where you were sitting in the audience. For a lot of people, it was a sign of pride and empowerment, and right. for others, it was just yet another disrespectful ripping apart at the seams of the of America that was that was really ongoing in 1968. Sort of this, who you know, what's going on in the country? Who what are we, what are we doing? Protests during the national anthem are not uncommon. We saw it with Black Lives Matter uh, matters, you know, in the St. Louis Rams and what have you. Uh, different different basketball players, college etc. But we also see it, you know, travel back, what, 12 years, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, yeah, um, yeah. Who, who wouldn't, same thing. And he, he was, you know, he was a, a devout Muslim and said that he felt that the Star Spangled Banner, which is, you know, it's a song of war, really disagreed with his own understanding of the Quran, and he wasn't going to take part in it. And what we see with these over and over and over again is is that people expect athletes when they step on the track or the pitch or the court, to absolve themselves of all politics. That sports are this apolitical realm, and it's it's just this thing that we seem to want to believe in this purity of sport and competitive play, and it's it just doesn't exist.
0: in in, in a certain in, sense, certain- it's not apolitical because standing for a national anthem is itself a political act, right? And it's, you know, so...
2: Yeah. When, it, look, when when Avery Brundage, who was the head of the International Olympic Committee in 1968, and, and truly one of the more odious characters in, in, in sports history, world sports history, as the heads of these international organizations tend to be, when he said, you know, there's no place for... Po-, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. There's no place for politics in sports. Sports are apolitical. The Olympic Games, you know, you enter under a flag they're they're inherently political by the very way that they're organized. So, so yeah, athletes don't shed that when they step up to compete.
1: Amy, let's as long as we're on the Olympics, let's let's get a little bit of your your bio here for our listeners. You tell us about your relationship with NBC's coverage of of the Olympics and how did you get connected with with NBC and tell us what you do for NBC every I know you couldn't make it to Rio this year, but every two years, you know, for the last what, 10, 15, 20 years uh, or so? Since
2: 1996. Since right, yeah, yeah. Tell Yeah.
1: Tell us a little bit about what you do in your other life when you're not a history professor.
2: All right. Well, it's it's, it's a little past tense with NBC right now because I've actually been writing mostly for CNN during okay. for the last two Olympics. So 2012 was my last games with oh, NBC. Oh, okay. But starting—that's not to say that the
1: door is necessary. Are you not? You're not going back, or I I don't.
2: I never. I never know. Okay. We'll see. You know, South Korea. Well, tell us
1: about what you did with NBC.
2: Yeah. So in in ninety six in ninety six was my first games. I think I've done eight games with the with NBC. I'm in charge of what's called the research room, which is an on site sort of brain, um, that functions for NBC with different geopolitical specialists, language specialists, sports specialists, finding the cool stories, verifying the cool stories, you know, a lot of stuff starts there and then pretty much everything. It's the, it's the last stop before something hits air. The, they're just the eyes and ears of the network during the game. So it's about 30 folks who, who worked under me and it's madness. It's (laughs) absolute madness.
1: I was trying to get Amy to actually hire me one Olympics (laughs) and she said, I can't remember what happened. I probably was, I couldn't go. Or you said, no, you're not going to like it. You're going to be bored or something like that. She said, but yeah. So, so as a historian, does that help you in this work?
2: Yes. Well, look, any, any good liberal arts background is going to help you in, in the kind of work that I do, right? The ability to think quickly, the ability to, Ask good questions, create good questions. And I have to say, being a historian, no matter, no matter how my writing has sort of transitioned over the years, I'm writing for much more popular organs now than I used right. to, not, not writing so much for academic space. And so the ability to ask the right questions of people, the ability to figure out the good stories and where they should go and, and how to get there, you know, what resources do you need to answer the question once you've posed it? How do you get from point A to point B? What questions are you left with? you know what which ones are important to to follow up with. So I I think I keep saying questions that I think yeah, that's yeah. huge. I think historians ask questions constantly and I think that one of the great things about historical method is that we don't ask questions once. Right? We didn't write a book about the reconstruction era and then say all right, that's awesome, we're done, right? right? right. We keep asking questions of these eras and we use the questions of our own era in which to sort of inform that that window of inquiry and I think that that's really helpful in situations, you know, whether you're doing a live broadcast of the Olympic Games to, to think about multiple perspectives on a single moment or, or whether you're trying to put them into historical context. And, and so I think that my history background and, and really the attention to craft, you know, I have to say, in addition to my graduate work. I taught historical method for a really long time at SUNY Plattsburgh, and teaching historiography really honed, I think, my skill set in terms of this kind of stuff.
1: Great. Great. Sticking with the Olympics, Amy, give us your quick take on Rio. I know you weren't there for this one, but was it a success? Was it not a success? Is that not even the way to measure uh, um, Olympic games? You know, what's your take on Rio?
2: No, I think that you can't say, was it good? Was it bad? Because yeah. I really think it depends. If you're an Olympic fan, it was amazing. Yeah. If you live in Rio, you, you right. know, you're going to have a different take. The Olympics are at a, at a really critical juncture, I think. I think that the IOC is properly under increasing fire as the world becomes disinterested for very solid reasons in hosting games. You know, the fact that they're going back to Beijing for a winter game so soon after a, a summer games, you know, the fact that we were just bids are dropping out all over the place. You know, you, you had Os- the Oslo dropout, which was enormous a few years back, but, you know, more recently, Rome. I think that the Olympics are at a, at a real critical juncture and some some things need to be figured out to make them work better. They are a huge, huge event. Yeah. That said, everything that's good about them is also because they are a huge, huge event. They okay. offer us a look at the world that simply nothing else does, right? No one says, like, oh, the United Nations are on tonight, let's watch. Um, <laughs> and so you you need stuff like this right and yeah. well the world cup well soccer and my current my current writing project is about soccer and and i've got mad props for soccer soccer saturates the globe in a way that no other sport does and i'm I'm learning things about soccer and where it exists in this world that that really strengthen my belief that soccer is is the most important element of of global sporting culture that that there is I mean then that's not you know that's not revelatory yeah. yeah but the the pageantry and the number of countries that participate in the Olympics set it apart from something like the World Cup, right when you have two hundred plus nations competing in Olympic Games, when you have the IOC saying in 2012 to Saudi Arabia and Qatar you have to bring women if you don't bring women you can't come right figure it out if you have the IOC however many years ago really the first global body to say to Afghanistan you know under Taliban rule no this is unacceptable we are we are banning you until you until you get your house in order it was the first major body back, and I write about this with my book on 68, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It, it threw South Africa out of the Olympic movement for apartheid. Yeah, no yeah. one was condemning South Africa for apartheid policy at that time. And, the, and, it was in, and sports really helps, I think, clarify things for people. I mean, you, when you go through sort of the press coverage of the IOC banishment of South Africa, you know, that the case is so crystal clear, but it's it's made in ways that politics don't make. So they say, you know, they're holding segregated trials, right? So there's a white trial and a black trial. And the, and the white trial numbers aren't as fast as the black trial numbers, but the white numbers are making the team. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that sportsman went, well, that's not fair. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's apartheid. So suddenly you have people understanding apartheid, right? You actually have at one point in the, in the late 60s, you have maps of South Africa in the sports section of the New York times explaining exactly how apartheid policies work. Um, this is in the sports section. So, so this is what makes me the constant sort of optimist about the Olympics because I think there is so much worth preserving, but the movement is its own worst enemy and they need to get, right-sized and they need to get rid of their aristocratic ways and they need to figure out how to reduce budgets and they need to you know they need to kind of go old school when you think back not that long ago that a place like lillehammer right this tiny little snow globe of a town hosted an olympic games and then you flash forward to torino vancouver right beijing this is what the Olympics have become. How do we get yeah. back to Lillehammer Hammer? Or
1: no more Lake Placids anymore.
2: Yeah, Lake Placid didn't even yeah, I mean it's not even possible. Not
1: even close. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. What was your favorite sort of I know you're a, a fan too. What was your favorite moment or what was your favorite, you know, performance in the in the Rio Olympics if you could pick one?
2: I can There's there's a couple. I mean, I I got to say Carrie Walsh's run was amazing and I know you're a volleyball fan. Yeah. yeah. Watching a woman Watching a woman, you know, a mother make that kind of run so powerful, putting her sport first. Simone Biles is one of the singular moments in Olympic history. I mean, not just these Olympics. She's she is something that we had never seen before we will probably never see again and it, it was i felt like it was a privilege that we were all watching her yeah. i gained enormous respect for michael phelps and i, I have have i know i'm talking about all americans at this point i have to say i was shocked by that because i've always sort of been the the, the history nerd skeptic about is right, right. the greatest olympian of all time because swimmers have a lot of medals they yeah, just have a yeah. lot of events you know al order defended a medal for four years for four olympics 16 years al order won the won the discus. And so that was the kind of thing that I always countered the Michael Phelps greatest He's got it now. Like, you know, right. he's over the course of, of, you know, from Athens on forward. It's just it's his, his legacy is ridiculous and solid. So Rio made me a, a Michael Phelps believer, which I never really had been before. Okay. Um, and again, no, you know, no fault of Michael's. He's a you know, he's a stellar he's a stellar example of an athlete. But this was really, I think, a, a historic moment uh, for him in terms of that. There's just no other that compares at this point.
1: Amy, this this is incredible. I wish we could had much more time to just listen to you talk about sports. We could just sit here and sort of glean your wisdom and your enthusiasm for this <laughs> subject. Keep writing, you know. Follow Amy uh, on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Amy? Bassab1. Bassab1, and where are you writing these days? You mentioned CNN. Like, how can we learn? How can we find your stuff?
2: Yes. I'm, I'm actually in a hole right now because I'm on a terrible book deadline. So I am, I'm shutting out the world okay. and trying to avoid writing about anything other than what I'm supposed to be writing about. So hopefully I will come out of my hole soon and and get back to being in all of those places. Yeah, you know, places like Slate and and Salon and CNN Opinion and and what have you.
1: Yeah, usually whenever there's a major whenever there's a major sporting event that intersects with some dimension of society, I Google Amy Bass's name and <laughs> and, and and put the like 24 hours or a week, you know, filter it that way to see what she has to say about this or just follow her on Twitter or, or and, and you could find out. Amy, this has been a pleasure. I know you've had a busy day today, so thanks so much for making some time to, to talk with us, and we really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, John.
1: Drew, I love talking to Amy. She has so much enthusiasm for, for sports and for sports history. You know, awesome interview.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, it's really refreshing to hear someone talk so so passionately about the intersection of history and sports, and you know, I mean, it's kind of how I've always watched sports since I was yeah. a kid.
1: Now, I was, I was. Uh, if I had more time, I would have asked her. I brought this up in the story just uh, before the interview. You know, why, why isn't sports history sort of more mainstream? I'm just asking this rhetorically. Why is it more mainstream in terms of historical scholarship? It's almost treated as a kind of outlier. Or if you're doing sports history, you're kind of not you know, really doing, you know, real scholarship, or I'm sure sports historians out there are bristling with me describing their their scholarship, and maybe this says more about me than them, but... Um,
0: well, it, I, I will say that in, especially in Native American history, there has been a, a, a pretty nice push towards sports history, but only because Native American athletes have been so, you know, with obviously the exception of Jim Thorpe, but Native American athletes have been kind of push to the margin so it's another margin for historians to explore and try to restore uh, Native American voices. Sure.
1: Let me ask you just for fun here, Drew. Let me ask you uh, the same question I asked Amy. What was your favorite part of the Rio Olympics?
0: Uh, when Wade van Niekirk, South African 400-meter sprinter, just shattered the record and and his, you know, they had the story of his coach and how she had worked uh, against apartheid for so many years, and he he was her prized pupil. And, uh, I mean, it just was a very powerful moment. And it was nice to see, a, a, as much as I obviously love to watch the American athletes succeed, you know, it was, it was nice to see a little bit more of a global story in that. So Sure,
1: yeah. For me, it was definitely it was definitely swimming. I'm a big Michael Phelps fan. I've always been a Michael Phelps fan. What I thought he did this year, I agree with Amy. What he did was amazing. Two other stories: Uh, Katie Ledecky was just incredible. I mean, her fabulous. I mean, she's yeah, the way she shattered those records and had such like huge leads in those races. The other thing that the other I just thought about this actually. The other. Big story I loved is I love the sprints in swimming. I used to be a big fan of this guy, Gary Hall Jr., who was kind of controversial. He'd come out, this was like in the in the 90s, he'd come out with like a boxing, a boxing robe on and stuff. But in the in the 50-meter sprint, Anthony Irvin who had won, I think his first Olympics, he won the gold in the 50 in like 2000. And then he was the oldest member of the, of, of the swimming team. I think he was in his, you know, mid thirties or something. And he won the 50 again. I thought that was, that was awesome too.
0: Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately it wasn't all roses for the American swim team. Cause of course we had to deal with, with the whole Ryan Lochte situation. So, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know, I think that gets to some of the political importance and, and, and the one thing that Really impressed me um, about the conversation surrounding the Ryan Lochte situation was the way in which it it brought to the foreground just what white privilege looks like, and especially for those who go to other countries. And the way Lochte really took advantage of these perceptions about how rough inner-city Rio was, yeah. and and you know, I thought that was a really as much as I hate that it happened, and I hate that you know Brazil was. Pulled through the mud in that regard, I was glad to see that teaching lesson, that teaching moment.
1: Yeah, again, sports imitates life. You know, I was—we're doing a new history bulletin board over in the history department at Messiah, and some of the work study students who are putting it up asked me. They're doing interviews with everyone, and they asked me. If you could do anything other than be a historian, what would you be? And I think one of the ways I answered is what I said, I'd love to host a sports radio talk show. So I feel like I'm getting a little bit of that today. This has been fun having Amy as a guest and just sort of talking sports with you, Drew. Um, yeah, I maybe think we, we should, could talk sports all night. Maybe we should do a sports episode sort of in every season just so we can keep up the speed. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. And as always, May your way of improvement always lead home.
0: This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Amy Bass. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host, as always, is John Fia.